So let me read uh, text for this morning's text for us this morning. It's James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then I will uh, pray and, and ask for God's help. So James chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word for us this morning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let me pray and ask for God's help once more. Father, we want to hear from you this morning. We need to hear from you, so would you use this text to speak to your people this morning? Be with my mouth, I pray, as I, as I speak, as I seek to communicate your word. May it be clear, may it be faithful. Please use this passage and this sermon to build up your church and to communicate what needs to be communicated here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Have you ever noticed when you're going through something really hard, how much it helps to know that something good awaits you at the end. Athletes experience this. You're, you're motivated in all of your training, all of your hard work by the reward of winning or excelling at your sport. You put in the hard work in hopes of being the best and, and receiving the prize. Or for some of you, this looks like working hard at your job and perhaps getting a promotion or working hard in school and getting a degree. Or for moms in the, ro- in the room, you've experienced this with pregnancy. Those nine hard months are worth it for moms because there's a, there's a baby when you finally reach the end. It helps us, it motivates us to get through the hard times when we know, when we believe that what awaits us at the end will be worth it. As we come to James 5, our, our text this morning, James is doing something similar. He's, he's encouraging us to persevere in light of the return of Christ. It's important to understand that the context for this passage is suffering. It's injustice. The believers to whom James were, were, was writing were suffering at the hands of wicked people. And the message he communicates is a message of patient endurance. The key verse for this passage is verse 7. That's where, that's where James calls the suffering saints to be patient. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And that's the main point of our passage. Writing to Christians who are suffering, James says, be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient 
because Jesus is coming back. In this text, James will give us three truths to help us be patient in the midst of suffering. So look with me again at verse 1, where we'll see the first truth we need to remember in order to be patient in suffering is that the Lord will judge the wicked. The Lord will judge the wicked. Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now in this passage, James will call the believers to be patient in suffering. Here in, in verses 1 through 6, we get a glimpse of why he's telling them to be patient. Now this section is about judgment on wealthy, unbelieving people, wealthy unbelievers. But what we need to understand from the outset is that there is a connection between what James lays out here in verses 1 through 6 and the patient endurance that he calls believers to in verses 7 through 11. So all this, all this is connected, it all fits together. And it's worth noting here, there, there is some debate as to whether verses 1 through 6 are addressing believers or unbelievers. Now I want to show you briefly why I, I think these first six verses are, are addressing wealthy unbelievers. James doesn't refer to them as, as brothers or give any other indication that he's speaking to believers like he does throughout the rest of his letter. He also gives no hope of repentance. There's no call to turn away from the evil that they've done. Instead, he addresses them in the first six verses with the assumption that they will come under judgment. There's a, a certainty about it. You can see it there in verse 1. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And then, when he gets to verse 7, he seems to turn to the believers to tell them, In light of all this, be patient, therefore, brothers. The word therefore in verse 7 is important. I think he, he starts addressing the believers in verse 7 in light of the suffering he's just described that they are enduring in verses 1 through 6. And he's telling them to be patient in the midst of this suffering that you're enduring at the hand of these wicked people. But I think it's clear when you look at the entire passage, 1 through 11 of chapter 5, that James is speaking to unbelieving rich people who have mistreated the believers in 1 through 6. And then he shifts from the unbelievers to the believers in 7 through 11 to call them to patience in light of the suffering he's just described. Does that make sense, sort of? Okay. I think having that understanding from the outset will help us now as we begin to dig deeper. The first reason James is telling the believers they can be patient is because the Lord will judge their oppressors. And then he provides three reasons why the oppressors will be judged. So let's walk through these three indictments, if you will. Indictment number one is hoarding wealth. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, this is a stark reminder to the rich that their riches will not last. In the same way that every human being does eventually pass away, so too will our riches. We want to be careful here, though, and make sure we don't misunderstand. The issue here is not actually the, the riches. The issue is hoarding. It's holding on to more than they need. The issue is stockpiling wealth and just trusting in wealth. These wealthy landowners weren't being judged just because they were rich. The first indictment is because they were stockpiling their treasures in this life. They were trusting in them, clinging to as much as they could possibly get their hands on. And James vividly points out the foolishness of living that way and managing money that way. He says, your riches have rotted and your, moth, and your, your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is James's way of telling them, you may think you're living it up right now, but it's all going to come crashing down. A lot of that hope, all that hope and identity and security that you're, you're placing in or getting from your riches, all of it is going to pass away. Remember, this is, is something James talks about elsewhere. Remember, this life is fleeting. You are a mist, and you won't be able to take any of those riches with you. In fact, James says, all of this wealth that you've hoarded, it will be used as evidence against you. Again, this is clearly judgment language. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, indictment number two that James has against them is injustice. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is where we see that the people James is addressing are, are landowners. And these wealthy landowners have cheated their workers. This is a matter of injustice. In, in Leviticus 19.13, the Lord says this. He says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The workers depended upon the wages to live on, to provide for their families, so employers were not to even let a day go by without making sure they paid their employees. Throughout the Bible, we see the Lord's concern for the poor, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, and this text picks up that same theme. And notice, the Lord takes this personally. The cries of the harvesters have reached his ears. And James says, you better be warned. The Lord sees you. He knows what you're doing. But notice it gets even worse in verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. More than likely, what James is referring to here is the inevitable result of withholding wages from the workers. Either the workers themselves or their families, especially their young children, may have died, perhaps due to starvation, because the, the workers were not getting paid their wages. That amounts to murder. When James says at the end of verse 6, he does not resist you, I think what he's saying is that these poor workers could do nothing to stop this from happening. They were without money, they were without power. In other words, they were helpless and they simply had to suffer at the hands of their oppressors. Indictment number three is self-indulgence. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Not only have the landowners cheated their workers, but they've done it to pad their own bank accounts. They're spending it all on themselves. They're living a luxurious, extravagant, self-indulgent lifestyle at the expense of their poor employees. What James says in the second half of verse 5 is one of those, those pictures in the Bible that just kind of shuts your mouth or stops you in your tracks. The farmer wants to get the cow or the chicken or the hog as, as fat as he can so that he's nice and plump before he goes to the slaughterhouse. The fattest one is most ready and fit to be slaughtered. Unknowingly, while indulging themselves in this life, living like the rich and the famous, all the while cheating their workers, James says, you're like the animal on the farm, grazing the pasture all day long, thinking about nothing besides stuffing your own belly. 
unwittingly getting yourself more and more and more ready for judgment. All of this will be evidence against you on the day of slaughter. You're, you're making the same mistake as the animal that eats and eats and eats and becomes the plumpest animal on the farm. So James begins with judgment against the, the unbelieving wealthy landowners and he, he lays out the case against them. Now I still think verses 1 through, through 6 should lead us to ask one important question. If James is talking to unbelievers who aren't even present at this point, why does he take time to even address them, to even write this? Here's what John Calvin said about these verses. He helpfully laid out two reasons why James did this. He said, James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, fortune, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. Calvin's comments are, are really helpful there. First of all, this message reminds believers that God will avenge them. God sees their suffering. He sees the injustice that they are suffering, and the Lord will deal with that. It's as if God wants the oppressed believers to, to see and to hear how seriously he takes these injustices and to see firsthand how the Lord will handle this. But another reason James writes this is because Christians... We can sometimes envy the rich uh, and the famous, those who are living for this world and, and living in mansions and wonder, what's the point of me even living this way? The way that I'm living as a Christian, why don't I just live like those guys? And James's pronouncement on judgment on the wealthy unbelievers reminds Christians it's not going to end well for them. We shouldn't envy them. And just because this is directed at unbelievers doesn't mean believers aren't supposed to heed the same warning. We shouldn't be too quick to dismiss this, like it doesn't apply to us at all. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should manage our money with an understanding that everything we that we have belongs to the Lord. We are stewards. It's our job to manage the money and the resources that God has entrusted to us in a way that honors and pleases the Lord. We need to recognize how we are all affected by, by advertisements and messaging that we are constantly bombarded with telling us to buy more things, to have a bigger house, to have more cars, to have more luxurious vacations, more stuff. And, and then we're sold the, the promise of the lie that then we'll be somebody. We are all tempted to buy into the lie that someone's success can be measured by how many nice possessions that they have accumulated. Brothers and sisters, let me just ask you, in light of this passage, how do you spend your money? If your bank statements were just displayed up here on a screen for, for everyone else to see, what would it reveal about the things that you are prioritizing? Would it show that you're a generous person or that you spend all of your money on, on yourself? Would it show that you give generously to your church or to, to help others in need or to, to support the spread of the gospel to the nations? Or would it show that you're stockpiling wealth as you build your own personal empire? If you are a business owner or a manager or someone who supervises other employees, how do you treat those who are under your supervision? Do you treat them with fairness, with dignity, with respect? Whether it's the employees that work for us or the waitress who is serving us, Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the planet. 
Money is not evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. God gives good gifts to his children for our enjoyment. It's not wrong, brothers and sisters, to save for your future, to save for retirement. There, there can be wisdom in those things. But there's a difference between saving what you will need and just stockpiling money and things that will never even be put to use. Remember, brothers and sisters, your riches will rot, your garments will be moth-eaten, your money will corrode. And yeah, are you, are you laying up treasure in this life or are you laying up eternal treasure? Are you investing in eternal things? I want to drive that point home to us because I think this is just a common blind spot in the day in which we live in. It's kind of the, the water that we're swimming in that we often aren't even aware of. Even though these first six verses are directed at unbelievers, I pray the Lord uses them to, to wake us up from our desire to hoard wealth for ourselves, from our tendency to self-indulge. That said, what James is doing is calling the Christians to be patient in the midst of their suffering. They are to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And the first reason he says you can be patient until Christ returns is because Jesus will judge the wicked who have oppressed you. Now James will shift his attention to the believers, and that brings us to our second point. The second truth you need to remember in order to be patient in suffering is that Jesus will come back to end your suffering. Jesus will come back to end your suffering. Look with me at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Here's the call to patience for the suffering saints. Remember that therefore in verse 7 points us back to verses 1 through 6 where the believers were suffering at the hands of wealthy landowners who were oppressing them. Now it's possible that some of us have experienced a similar type of oppression. Maybe you have worked for someone who literally withheld wages that you worked for, made it hard for you to make ends meet. But this is just one form of oppression that might bring about suffering. There are many forms of suffering and oppression. Some of our suffering comes from just living in a fallen world. Some of you are suffering because you're sick, because you're in pain. You're, you're waiting for answers about your health and you don't know what the doctor's going to tell you. Or you could be hurting over the loss of a loved one. Others may have faced forms of oppression such as racism or, or abuse. And James acknowledges oppression and injustice in verses 1 through 6, and he says, God will take care of them. They'll be dealt with for what they've done. And to those who are suffering, whether it be at the hands of an oppressor or for other reasons, he simply says, be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. I wonder, do you immediately find that satisfying? Or does it leave you frustrated? God makes it clear that he'll deal with the oppressors, but as far as our suffering is concerned, there doesn't seem to be an immediate fix. We're just told to wait until Jesus returns. Why would James start there when he addresses people who are suffering? Well, I think one simple answer to that is because Christians have always suffered and will always suffer. That's just a, a part of our life. It's a part of the Christian life. James is pointing suffering Christians to the time when they won't be suffering anymore. He's reminding them that day is coming. 
So he's saying be patient, and he's giving them a goal to, to look forward to. Be patient until that day when your suffering will end. Because Jesus is coming back, we will see him face to face and spend eternity in his presence. That truth is what helps us to be patient. But notice what James does next. He gives us an illustration in the second part of verse 7. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. James draws our attention to the farmer who, who plants his seed and then he waits. Farming was a common way of life for the, the Christians in James's day. Rains in that part of the world came at two points in the year, the autumn and the spring. And between these times, the farmer still had a lot of work to do, but he could do nothing to speed up the process of bringing the crops to harvest. So keep in mind, for the farmer, this was his livelihood. He depended on the harvest to feed his family. But patiently waiting on God to, to send the rain was how they had to live. It was how they had to survive. And Christians, we are called to wait patiently for the return of Christ in the same way. Life will test us as we meet various trials. And through a lifelong process, we will grow into maturity. But we will see the final fruit only when Jesus returns. What is it that makes waiting so hard? I mean, just think about that for a moment. What is it that makes waiting so hard? I think as Christians, part of it, what makes it so hard is that we know the glories of what's to come, but, but they're not here yet. It's not always our experience right now. And I don't know about you, but I want them here now. I know what's coming, and I'm ready for it. We know that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he will restore everything back to the way it should be. There won't be any more injustice. Sickness will be a thing of the past. We'll stop having people that we love ripped away from us. But we're not there yet. That's not what we experience right now. And this, Christians, this is the tension that we have to live with. We have to wait, and that's hard, isn't it? So James reminds us again in verse 8, you also must be patient. Remembering that Jesus will come back to end our suffering enables us to be patient. But what should be the attitude of our hearts while we wait? Let's look at the rest of verse 8. It says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Another way to say this might be, Prepare your heart or even examine your heart because Jesus is coming back. What James was calling his readers to is this. We are to examine ourselves in light of Christ's second coming. We're to prepare ourselves to see our king face to face. We're to see to it that we are standing firm in the faith because Jesus is coming back for us. Knowing that Jesus is coming back to end our self-suffering helps us to persevere so that we are longing for Jesus and still clinging to him by faith when he returns. And as we wait, we should ask ourselves, do I, do I long to be with Jesus? Am I thinking about being in Jesus' presence someday and, and living in light of that reality now? Next, in verse 9, we're told how not to conduct ourselves while we wait for our Lord to return. Verse 9 says, do not Grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
At first, I think this, this almost seems disconnected from everything else James has said, but here's the thing. When you, when you grumble about something, it's often because you're not being patient. I know this is true in my own life. Grumbling usually reveals a lack of patience. If we're honest, we're all prone to grumbling at times. We grumble about everything from the weather. Oh, why does it have to be 102 degrees again in Austin today? To how long something is taking, having to wait in line somewhere, to something that our spouse or our our kids or our parents do that annoys us. But especially when we are in situations, when we're suffering, where we're hurting, where we're under stress, we are often tempted to respond by grumbling. How do you respond when life doesn't turn out the way that you had hoped or planned? What do you do when things get really hard? Do you start pointing fingers at at other people and and blaming them for what you're having to go through? You see how James is trying to help us. In suffering, we need patience. We need to remember that Christ is coming back, that he will end our suffering, because otherwise we can respond to our suffering, suffering by grumbling against our loved ones, against others in the church. We can turn on turn on each other in frustration. And at times, if we're tempted to grumble against each other, we may also be tempted to grumble against God. In his helpful book, Side by Side, Ed Welch explains how suffering can affect us. He He says, suffering leaves us spiritually vulnerable. It raises questions about God's goodness and care, and it whispers that we must have done something bad to deserve such suffering. I wonder if you've experienced what Ed is referring to there. In the midst of your suffering, have you found yourself doubting God's goodness, shaking your fist at him, or believing the lie that your suffering is somehow evidence that God must not love you, otherwise you wouldn't be going through this? Grumbling against God is is faithless complaining. It tells God that he isn't good, which means it tells a lie about God, that he's doing something wrong. Christians, we have to work hard and ask for God's help to renew our minds, to remind ourselves of the truth, because we can all fall prey to unbiblical ways of thinking. We will all be tempted to believe lies from the enemy. This text is an important truth that that Christians in this life can experience having much of what we love, our health, so many things that we we often take for granted. We We can lose them all. And so we are called to be patient, knowing that we will have more than we could ever imagine when Jesus takes us home. We have all we need right now because we have him. So James tells us, when you suffer, be patient. Don't grumble. And he backs it up with an important warning in the rest of verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The reason we can be patient is because Jesus is coming, because he is near. But notice, James also warns us against grumbling by reminding us that he is near, that he's standing at the door. Pastor Sam Alberry helpfully explains verse 9 this way. He says, Again, it is the nearness of the Lord that is our impetus to live rightly. The judge is at the door. It is hard to imagine him nearer than that. The handle is about to turn. And so we are to speak to one another in such a way that we would not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus himself being within earshot. James is clear that Jesus 
judges such grumbling. Such words are assessed by him. We are not to worry that our standing before God is threatened, but there is a clear implication here that Jesus is greatly displeased with us when we grumble. James calls us to patience in our suffering. In order to be patient in suffering, we need to remember that Jesus is coming back to judge the wicked, and he will put an end to our suffering. But while we're waiting, we're still living in a broken world, what comfort do we have while we wait? In verses 10 through 11, we see the third truth we need to remember in order to be patient in suffering. God has good purposes in your suffering. God has good purposes in your suffering. Look at me with verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Sometimes it's helpful just to be reminded that others have gone through something that you are going through. I remember we, we have uh, three young kids now, but I can remember before we had our first child, um, <clears throat> childbirth seemed like a daunting event. And yet I remember my wife, Callie, finding a lot of comfort in the reminder that she's not the first one to do this. <laughs> in fact, women have been doing it all throughout history since the beginning of time. That kind of reminder can be really helpful to people when we're facing something scary or hard, and James knows that. In verse 10, he points us to the prophets from the Old Testament, and he says, brothers and sisters, you're not the first to go through this. Look at the prophets and how they patiently endured suffering before you. James doesn't tell us what prophet or prophets he had in mind here, but there seemed to be a general understanding that even though the prophets were God's mouthpieces, they spoke God's words to the people. They fulfilled an important and unique role. Despite that, they often suffered. We can see this in the prophet Jeremiah's life. Just as, as an example, Jeremiah is falsely accused of being a deserter, so then he's imprisoned, and later on, He's thrown into a storage tank where he then begins to sink, sink down into the mud that was in the tank. He was no stranger to suffering. The prophets often didn't have a popular message for the people. They often communicated God's warnings of judgment, yet they were faithful to deliver God's words even if they encountered suffering. That's why James highlights them for you and for me, for, for his original hearers, here because they provide a good example of people who have gone before us who patiently endured suffering. James continues. He backs us up with a, another example from Scripture in verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job provides us with a concrete example of an Old Testament saint who endured great suffering. If you're familiar with Job, then it immediately probably comes to mind. What we witness in Job is a man who has everything taken away from him. He loses much of his family, his wealth, and his, and his very own physical health. In the verses that were, that were read earlier in Job 1, we heard the series of disasters that Job hears news of in, in chapter 1. He's told that his servants were killed, that he learns that more of his servants were consumed by fire along with his sheep, then more of his servants and camels were killed after that, and eventually he lost his sons and daughters when a strong wind caused the house to fall on them and kill them. Did you notice how Job responds to this tragedy and heartbreak? This is, this is Job's response in Job 1, verses 20 and 21. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Immediately after tragedy has entered Job's life, he exhibits a steadfastness. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is beyond anything I can imagine. Job grieves. He tears his robe and shaves his head. By the way, it's, it's good and right for God's people to grieve loss. But did you catch the next thing it says? After he tears his robe and shaves his head, it says he fell on the ground and worshipped. That was his response. He, he worshipped. So I ask you, just as I ask myself, in the, in the darkest moments of your life, is your reaction to, to worship God? Throughout the, rest of this, throughout the rest of Job, we see that Job doesn't have an easy go of it. The, the next thing he suffers is his own health. But through many questions and wrestling with God, Job does persevere. He does continue to trust in God. He may only be hanging on by a thread at times, but he never abandons the faith. He, James contrasts the grumbling that we're told to avoid. Catch that. The grumbling that we're su- supposed to, be, to, to not practice, he contrasts that with the steadfastness here of Job. So by holding out first the prophets and now Job as an example, James is saying, brothers and sisters, saints at Park Hills, this can be done. I know you are suffering and I know it's painful, but hang in there. Be patient. If you think you just don't have it in you, look at the prophets. Look at Job. Sometimes they had nothing except for God, but that was enough. So let that be enough for you while you wait upon the Lord. Now look back with me at the the beginning of verse 11 in James 5. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Then he goes on to mention the the steadfastness of Job. We saw Job remain steadfast after enduring unimaginable tragedy. He responds by simply saying, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Have you ever witnessed someone endure suffering? with such grace that it makes you want to handle painful circumstances in a similar way, or it just gets your attention. Years ago, I watched a video of a very sick pastor who at the time wasn't expected to live very long. He was just sharing a brief devotional at his table in his home, and he was, he was visibly weak. He'd actually already had surgery to remove a brain tumor, had a big scar on his head, head was still shaved. And after he finished, he shared a a couple of prayer requests, and I'll never forget what he asked for. As he was seeking to encourage his church, asked them to pray for him, he said, pray that God would grant me the grace to suffer well in a way that would bring glory to Christ. I wasn't a Christian when I watched that. And I didn't have a category for what in the world that man could possibly have been talking about. Suffer well? How do you honor Christ when you're suffering? I didn't understand it at the time, but it it made an impact on me and set my life on a different course as I started looking for answers in my Bible. See, we don't naturally endure adversity in a way that is pleasant or attractive. James is referring to these types of situations when he says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
when people don't curse God or become bitter towards others during tragedy, we recognize there's something unique going on there and God is probably at work in them. But there's more to it than just that. In James 1.12, earlier on in James, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Is that not ultimately what we consider, why we consider those blessed who remain steadfast? Because they persevered and now we know they will receive the crown of life? That's why they're blessed, because they're going to receive their reward. It should make us ask God that our hearts would be established, as verse 8 puts it, so that we don't turn to grumbling at the first sign of sickness or inconvenience or even loss. And please hear me, I am not trying to minimize any of those things. And I don't think this passage wants you to feel any of those things to be minimized. But this is what we're being called to. Instead, that we can respond to all of life, the highs and the lows, as Job did, with blessed be the Lord. Because we're relying on who God is rather than only seeing our circumstances. We should learn from Job. But I wouldn't be doing us any favors if I said the specific way that Job responds here, where he seems unflappable, is the only way that you can be steadfast and suffer well. Christians are going to respond to suffering in various ways that can be pleasing to God. And I just want that to be clear. It's okay, for instance, to cry out to God, to express to him your confusion, to ask him open and honest questions like, God, why, why is this happening? I don't understand what you're doing in this right now. This is different from grumbling. This is not faithless complaining that accuses God of doing wrong. This is a Christian turning to God in faith for answers and for help. This is crying out to the God who hears you, the God who made you, the God who cares for you, and asking him for help. If you find yourself crushed under the weight of your suffering and are able to do nothing else but turn to God and say, help. Help. You are responding to your suffering in a way that honors God because you're turning to him as your source of refuge and strength. You're remaining steadfast when you respond that way. Let me also encourage you to be open and honest with other trusted believers when you are struggling so they can pray for you, so they can help you. No one should have to suffer alone. So be open and honest with others so they can Pray for you so they can help you and build those kinds of relationships so that you can be doing the, the same for others. James has provided examples to encourage us to patiently endure suffering while we wait for our Lord's return. But the examples are not an end in themselves. These are meant to point us beyond the patience of the prophets and Job and ultimately to the purposes of God in our suffering. Look at verse 11 again. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, there is no accident this statement about the purpose of the Lord is connected to the mentioning of Job. We do learn about Job's steadfastness in the book of Job, but the truth that rings loud throughout Job is that our suffering is not meaningless. God has purpose in it. 
This is why the prophets and Job could be patient in suffering. They knew God was at control, that he was at work in the good times as well as the bad. When it feels like everything is crashing down around you, when it feels like there is utter chaos, remember that God is still in charge. This frees us up to be patient and to wait on God. God's sovereignty over all things is meant to be a tremendous comfort to the people of God. Yet sometimes this can be hard for us to wrap our minds around, and understandably so. That's where the final words we just read of verse 11 are so vital to our understanding of God's sovereignty and his purposes. James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You have to understand the the goodness of our God, his compassion and his mercy. In Job's life, we see that God has good purposes for Job. In the final chapter of Job, chapter 42, Job confesses this. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Through all of the trials that Job endured, he ends up saying to God, now I know you. God's good purposes for Job resulted in Job having a deeper and fuller knowledge of the one true God. Then we see the Lord's compassion on Job in the closing verses of the book where we're told that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. The Lord blessed Job after all of his suffering. And for Job, it happened in his lifetime. Brothers and sisters, we have no promise that everything we have suffered or lost will be restored in this lifetime. But we have something better. Romans 8.28 promises us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In my own life, God used the steadfastness of the pastor I mentioned earlier during his sickness in a profound way. God used that pastor's suffering to bring about my salvation as I started listening to his sermons and heard the gospel preached and the Lord saved me. Our God has good purposes in everything. Will we always know what his purposes are? No, we will not. And sometimes we will drive ourselves crazy if you try to get to the bottom of every single situation and figure out exactly what he's doing. We simply will not always know. But we can trust that he knows what he's doing because he's good and he doesn't make mistakes. You cannot disconnect God's prompt, his, his purposes from his character. His purposes are always out of love and for our good. So in light of all of that, James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You have seen how he's compassionate and merciful in the lives of the prophets and Job. So do you think he's going to be any different to you now? Because you're suffering, do you think that God has somehow changed? The God who was faithful to Jeremiah and to Job will be faithful to you. The God who sent his only son to die for your sins and has shown you his love. He's demonstrated his faithfulness to you so you can be patient and trust him now even when it's hard. Because he is perfect. He is kind. He is the God of all grace. As James opened this letter, he said in in, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has purposes and trials that include producing steadfastness in us 
And ultimately, we know that the road to the crown of life is through trials. But how are we to remain steadfast? We put our hope in that day when Christ returns and our faith will finally be sight. We cling to the truth that we'll sing here in just, just a moment. That from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. And we follow our Savior's lead. Our Savior who patiently endured suffering. Our Savior who patiently waited when tempted by Satan. He, he said, I refuse to take any shortcuts. My victory must come through the cross. He patiently waited through life in this fallen world. He endured mocking and a slow death when he could have called down lightning from heaven and destroyed the people who were carrying out injustices on him. All of that he did looking forward with patience, knowing his exaltation and our salvation awaited. And even in our, our Savior's suffering and death, what do we see but the Lord's compassion and mercy toward us in the most unexpected circumstances? You and I have no salvation if Jesus didn't go to the cross. He had to suffer in order for God's mercy to be poured out on us in the forgiveness of our sins. What others meant for evil in the crucifixion of Jesus, God meant for our salvation, for our good. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're going through right now, many of you I don't know personally, I don't know the things that are on your mind, that are weighing on you, on your hearts as you sit here today. Whatever it is, know this, God is on his throne. He loves you and he is working for your good, which ultimately means making you more like Jesus and causing you to finish the race. Oftentimes when a father who has young children is away on a trip, there is a, a longing and a great excitement on the children's part for daddy to come back home. For many of you with young children, you can picture the scene in your head. He finally comes home and the children run and just tackle their daddy who's been gone. <clears throat> what they've been longing for is just for him to be present. This passage is describing that kind of a longing and that kind of excitement for us as we long for Christ to come back and to be present with us. We can be patient as we wait upon the Lord because he is faithful and he has promised that he's coming back for us. So until then, let me encourage us to view the entirety of our lives with eternity in view our finances, our parenting, our jobs, our marriages, our friendships, our giving, our speech, our time. This should affect every area of your lives. Don't make the mistake of living with only this brief life in view. Lift up your eyes, set them on Christ as you wait for his return. Park Hills, you're blessed to have one another uh, in this church. And as you, as you live your lives together, let me encourage you to encourage one another to wait for Jesus. So press on as you wait patiently for that day. Press on as you long to be with him. Press on as you trust that he has good purposes for the details of your lives. And press on as you remember that the God who holds you in his hand is full of compassion and mercy. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for how you have loved us in Christ. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us from our sins. And thank you, Father, for the hope we have as your children, knowing that Jesus is coming back to right all wrongs, 
to put an end to all sickness, to put an end to death, to put an end to suffering. Father, would you cause us to, to encourage one another as we wait upon the Lord. And Father, may we, like children waiting for their daddy to come back home, may we wait with great joy and excitement for Christ to come back. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.